0: The great epistle to the Romans that we're working through, and we are still in chapter 15, and I'll read to you this morning verses 20 to 28, which by now you know well we will take them apart a bit. There's an application here that I consider to be one of the most fundamental applications of the Christian faith, and I hope you'll walk away today edified by looking again into it. So verse 20, the apostle begins with these words. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he has not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. For this reason I also have been much hindered from coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way, here, way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain." Father, we thank you for this, your holy word. Amen. And so you see this personal desire of the Apostle Paul, and he's not remiss to speak about it honestly. So I've made it my aim to preach the gospel, he writes. There's a shocker. The apostle made it his aim to preach the gospel, but not where Christ was named, lest he build on another man's foundations. Friend, it's not wrong to build on another man's foundation. But he wanted to, But his calling was to go out where the gospel had not yet even been heard. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. Do you still believe in evangelism? That's what this asks me. You bring the gospel to someone who's never heard it, and they receive it with joy. And yet still so often we're not certain that they have been changed by it. Well, the apostle was always certain in those times. And as we've noted from the beginning of this series on Romans, the first part of it was dedicated to doctrine. Now, when you preach the gospel for the first time and someone receives it with joy, like maybe the Ethiopian eunuch and his chariot on the way uh, to Jerusalem, right? And he's reading from Isaiah and he needs a guide. How can I understand without a guide? And, and, uh, Philip runs alongside the chariot, hops up into the chariot and in the, and then the, uh, Luke writes that, um, in beginning in Isaiah, he preached Jesus to him. You see, this is what it's all about before they were done with the ride. I'm not sure that, that Philip, taught him the five points of calvinism on that ride. I'm not quite sure. Um I'm not quite sure that he taught him about justification by faith or the priesthood of all believers and all the things that go along with those doctrines. But somehow they came upon a body of water and the man knew he needed to be cleansed in Jesus name and he says, "What's to prevent me to, from being baptized?" And Philip said, "If you believe with all your heart, you may." And so he did. In other words, evangelism is the tool God gave us to bring souls to Christ. So in the first eight chapters, Paul focused on the revelation of the righteousness of God. We read from chapter 1, if you may remember. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. From chapters 9 through 11, he offers a vindication of the righteousness of God. And he writes, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And if you remember, he said that we are the clay, and shall the clay say to the potter, why have you made me like this? So he vindicates the righteousness of God, even though some become apprised of it and live by it, and some don't. Yet God is still righteous. From chapters 12 to 16, he offers us a very cogent application of the righteousness of God. So he gave us the revelation of the righteousness of God in the first eight verses, verse eight chapters rather. He gave us a vindication of it from chapters nine through 11 and from 12 through 16 he gives us an application of it. And so we read from chapter 12, I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, Friends, worship God and don't forget to bring your body. Holy, acceptable in God, which is your reasonable service. I labored much over that when we passed through there. That it refers to your intelligent, that's what reasonable means, and service means worship. Your reasonable service is your intelligent worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the renewing of your mind. In other words, you have the tools to be transformed, so be transformed. It's an application. The renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Friends, we come to Christ upon hearing the gospel with the merest amount of doctrine and understanding, and yet we are changed. The merest amount. But if we've truly come and the Holy Spirit is in us, and we have the substance of God's written word, as they now have in Rome, a church that Paul did not found but tutored them along, they knew they were saved. Now they know the mechanics of it, how it happened in the heavenlies, how it was applied to them by faith. And they begin to learn all these things. And by the Holy Spirit in them, they will not reject the truth of the word. And that's how it works. You come upon the merest amount of doctrine, it seems. And I'm going to labor over that somewhat this morning. You may remember the the apostle told the Ephesians that they should put on righteousness as a soldier puts on his armor. You know the passage, right? It speaks of righteousness as our breastplate, the shining piece of armor that people see when the Christian walks up, or do they? How's your breastplate this morning? Is it shining or has it been dulled and dented by sin? You know, I heard a minister very recently saying the world loves to point out the sins of the church. And let me tell you, friends, they're usually right. They see it. And they say, how are you righteous when you talk and act the way you do? How are you righteous? When you when what? <laughs> I know. How are you righteous when you make a lewd gesture on the Middleborough Rotary to fellow drivers? <laughs> How are you righteous when a young Christian man lives with a woman out of wedlock? How is it righteous? What do you think these things have changed over the years? If you don't rebel against man, you rebel against God in such cases. How are you righteous when you say, well, me and my wife are going to go our own ways now? How is it righteous? Oh, we have irreconcilable differences. I heard a preacher say recently, my wife and I have had irreconcilable differences for 50 years. (laughs) Friends, shine up the breastplate. Repent of sin. Do the right thing. Know who you are and be glad before God that he sees that you've repented. And so, our breastplate, the sign of our righteousness, is that shining statement of who we are. And it's the protective element of our very heart. The righteousness protects us, just as the shield protects us from every fiery dot of the wicked one, right? Just as the helmet of salvation protects us, and our feet are shod with the gospel of peace. And so we're in the midst of Paul's great application for the faith. So he teaches this section by revealing his own desires. And he teaches the essential lesson to the saints that divine duty will almost undoubtedly conflict with personal desire. Friends, you're always going to have personal desires. But if you want to be righteous before God if you want to put your breastplate first and be recognized for the righteous saint that you ought to be in Christ, then duty will always come before desire. Not that you can't express your desires. Paul does, but he says, but I have other business first. I have other business before I get there. I'd love to come to you, but I have to go to Jerusalem first. And so he teaches the essential lesson to the saints that divine duty trumps personal desire. Duty versus desire. I almost entitled the sermon that this morning. Instead, I chose I have been much hindered because it's, I usually uh, entitle sermons with a direct quote from the passage. But duty versus desire. That's what he's talking about here. I've come to believe that this very thing is the essential lesson of the Christian faith. Friends, you have a problem in your life, I'll tell you what the problem is. It's very simple. It's prioritizing. It's putting the things of God in proper order. And friends, why do you think the Lord's Day is the first day of the week? Do you think that's by accident? No, because God wants you to come to him first, to put him first. He's your first love, right? Right? You tithe of the first part of the produce. Priorities. Put God first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be yours in abundance. Indeed, the truth has made us free just as the Lord has promised that it would. You think you have too many rules in the Christian faith? How can there be too many rules when Christ said you've been made free? What do you have been made free of, friends? The truth has made us free just as the Lord promised it would. But freedom is not the freedom to sin. You already have that. You don't think the unbeliever has the freedom to sin? Oh, I'm free. You're all bound up with rules and regulations and commandments that wither the soul. Freedom's not freedom to sin. It's not freedom to rebel as Adam rebelled. Adam was in paradise and had freedom to sin. It's not freedom to do as we please. No, freedom, what we may refer to as Christian liberty, is the freedom from sin that the world doesn't have yet. It's the freedom from the power of Satan. He cannot blind your eyes. And if he does, it's your own fault because you have me to open them for you with the next good sermon. You have friends with spiritual gifts who've been around long in the faith and can tell you where you're erring. And you can trust them because there's love there first. It's the freedom from the power of Satan. It's not freedom from temptation. It's the freedom and the power to resist the temptations that most certainly will come. It's freedom from the lusts of the flesh. They don't rule us anymore. It's freedom from friends. The God of convenience, that has got to be one of, the, one of the great gods in the pantheon of American gods today, the God of convenience. Why do you think people kill their children today in abortion? It's for convenience. I'm not ready. It's freedom from the lusts of the flesh, or as Peter wrote, free, yet you're not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God not under the law yet still delighting in the dictates of the law we don't come to worship because it's the law but it is the law we worship God because it delights us to worship him because his being has been made known to us and there's nothing else we can do to honor him but fall down on our faces and worship him in the way that he's told us to do it we delight in the worship of God. And so the apostle offers for us here a wonderful personal dichotomy. He speaks of having a great desire these many years to come to you while at the same time saying, for this reason I've been much hindered from coming to you. For what reason? I had duties to perform. I couldn't just do what I want. You know, Silas and I and Luke and Titus, well, we're going to, we're going to catch a cruise around the Mediterranean. We're going to go to Rome and visit the, visit the saints. No, he had to go to Jerusalem because they were starving in a famine there. And the other saints, the saints who were also not wealthy saints in Macedonia, in Achaia, where Corinth was, where he's writing this sermon from, from that great ancient pagan city. And he says they have put together uh, an offering to the saints because They knew that they were indebted to the Jews of Jerusalem who became Christians because the Jews brought them the word of God. And he said, if you partake of their spiritual things, ought you not give them your material things? Material things are nothing next to spiritual things. And if you go to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, you'll find that they overwhelmingly gave out of their abundance and out of their poverty to help the other saints. And they entrusted Paul and some others to bring that gift to Jerusalem. Imagine traveling along the road with a great gift. It isn't like they had dollar bills or notes or American Express checks, right? Traveler's checks. No, they probably had a chest of gold. But you know what's interesting that isn't true in this day? Roman roads were safe. They were policed. We always think of it somehow as Rome was such a bad place. It was, but it was a very orderly place. And he could travel around the countryside with a chest of gold or something that he's going to give them to bless them at this time. He couldn't bring them flocks of sheep on the ship to eat. So he's giving them money. And so from our verse, we can see that Paul was restricted from accomplishing his personal desire. Because of the personal duties to which he was called by God. And that duty is expressed in this verse. In verse 19, he says, From Jerusalem roundabout to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And then he continues saying, I made it my aim to preach the gospel. And as I've said, I've always found it astonishing that a man may never have heard of the life and death and divine purpose of Jesus Christ, and yet having once heard it is forever changed by it. I'm such a man. (laughs) Having once heard it out of abject paganism and then heard about the love of Christ, been forever changed, forever saved, forever secure, and forever assured that all those things happened. The word's powerful to do that. Our gospel has gone forth to the unbeliever. It's gone forth to the heathen. It's gone forth to sinners of every troop and tribe in the earth, and people have been changed by it. And I'm reminded, first of all, the Lord's own preaching. The Lord went to those who hadn't heard it, and saw them changed just by the preaching of it. Remember the woman at the well? Jesus had to go south from Galilee, and to do that effectively, he had to travel through Samaria. The Jews didn't like to travel through Samaria, because those are bad people. I hope you know that when you're reading The Good Samaritan, what Jesus is doing is he's kind of twisting the knife to the Jews, saying, there's a Good Samaritan out there, right? Right? The priest and the Levite passed by the guy, but the Samaritan helped the guy who <laughs> was hurt along the road. So they went through this, you know, Samaria is a, is a country. It's also a city within the country. So surely this woman of the country of Samaria had not heard the living gospel of Christ. I think she heard of it. They knew they had the concept of Christ going for them. But until that moment, when the Lord Himself introduced her to it, she hadn't heard it yet. And how did, he, how did He preach the gospel to her? Do you remember the first words? He came up and He's at a well, and what did He do? He said, Give me a drink. The gospel's always, very often, compared to a drink. It's very often compared to something refreshing and cleansing and overflowing. The gospel is a a gospel of abundance. Give me a drink. And if she's, of course, is perplexed. Jews don't ask Samaritan women to drink. First of all, a single guy along the road doesn't approach a woman who's alone. You could incur the wrath of her family. who said, what do you think you're doing to our sister, our daughter, or whatever it might be? So she was amazed that he would even, that he would even speak to her. Now, he might have countered with this. He might have said, by the way, I'm not asking for a drink. I'm commanding that you give me a drink. He could have done that, but in effect, he did. If language means anything, he said, give me a drink. He didn't say, please, may I have a drink? He said, give me a drink. It's reminiscent of what Elijah said to another widow or this woman was not a widow, but to a widow, of Zarephath, with Zarephath. Well, it's in Lebanon, another non-Jew. So he goes up north, Elijah did, many, many years, some 900 years before this. And he meets the famous widow of Zarephath. You know the story. She had enough flour and oil for a single loaf for her her, her and her son. And due to the famine, they would eat that final loaf, And she said, my son and I are going to eat it and die. That's what she told Elijah. And he said, yeah, you know, I I see your problem. There's a drought, there's a famine, there's no food. You have just enough food for yourself, but go in the house and make me a cake first. (laughs) Oh, that traveling preacher coming in, taking the last bit of what you have, you know. Go and do as you have said, he said to her, but make me a small cake first. And afterward I'll and afterward make some for yourself and for your son. She just told them she had enough for one, and they're going to eat it as a last meal and die. But make me one first. It's like Jesus. the woman comes to get the water from the well, and he said, "Give me a drink." Consider the power of faith, though friends. Faith is complete trust in a message that you may or may not have ever heard before. Even a person who's heard the word for the first time may become completely subject to its alluring power. I always say to preachers, when they, ask you to, when they ask you to speech or deliver eulogy at a funeral, always do it for two reasons. One, people are there to hear about eternal life. That's the time when they're confronted with it and want to hear it. They won't walk out on you when you preach the gospel at a funeral. And the other thing is, this may be the only time that they get to hear it. Even a person who's heard the word of God for the first time may become completely subject to its alluring power. In that same passage, God said to his prophet, so God tells Elijah, get away from here and turn eastward. Hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook. In other words, there's water up there. Go there. And listen what he says. I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And if you know the story, the ravens, which are these crows or blackbirds, come in, right? And they bring him meat and bread. If you believe that, I got a a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. But of course he did it. How else would Elijah have had the strength to continue? When the brook dried up, the Lord said again to the prophet, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow to provide for you. Now, I've always told you that the gospel of God is not a mere proposition, friends. And it's not a mere invitation. It is a command. Give me a drink is a command. Feed my prophet is a command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved is a command. So after the earthquake shook down the Philippian jail where Paul and Silas were being held, the men of the prison asked, sirs, what must we do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So Elijah did according to God's command. The ravens did according to the Lord's command. The men in the prison did according to the Lord's command. And the widow of Zarephath did according to the Lord's command, which is what? Their reasonable service. She served the prophet of God first, and so she was spared the imminent death that so many others in that world would finally succumb to. Jesus said there were many people starving in, in Zarephath at that time. He said many centuries later. But the prophet went to one widow. He said there were many lepers in the land at that time, but only to Naaman, only to Naaman did God send his prophet. You remember the story, Naaman. So Elijah gave her the good news. That the promise of God shall not fail. Death shall not come among you. Serve me first. Seek first the kingdom of God. All these things shall be added unto you. And so the prophet was able to say to her, do not fear, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, the Lord that commanded the ravens, the Lord that commanded his prophet, the Lord that is commanding you to make me a cake first, he has said that the bin of flour shall not be used up and that the jar of oil shall not run dry until the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So let's remember what God commands, God provides for. When God gives us a mission, he also gives us the provision to accomplish the mission. So when the woman at the well heard the word of God through the mouth of the Son of God, she immediately recognizes it. So Jesus preached the gospel to her saying it this way, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Friends, the gospel is water. It's life-giving, refreshing, cleansing water. And so the apostle Paul though he would like to have visited Rome, though he believed that someday he would go there on his way to Spain, he could not do so now because he was commanded to do something else. He could not do so because in the providence of God it was not ordained. So let's look, at the, let's look into the content of the gospel. How do you know when you've talked to someone about... Uh, spiritual things that you've actually delivered the gospel. How do you know? We can recall f- for the word of God to the Athenians on Mars Hill. Remember Paul in Mars Hill, Acts 17? That's a great chapter of the, of the scriptures. Paul preached to them a very basic message on the nature and purpose and predestination of God when he went to Mars Hill. He told these people that though they were very, quote, religious, right, he noticed the shrines and temples to all the various gods of that people, gleaming white marble cities and structures all up and down the main thoroughfares of Corinth, of, of Athens, rather. There were many shi- shrines and temples to their god, and then there was one shrine that said to the unknown god. And he said, The god that you worship without knowing, I know him, and I'm going to reveal him to you today. He said that the one they worshiped without knowing was known to him. And he told them that God does not dwell in temples made with hands. He told them that God made all things and rules the earth. He told them that men of all nations were of one blood. He told them that this sovereign deity had already determined a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness... And then he told them he's going to judge it by the man he's ordained. And he proved that that was the man because he raised him from the dead. Now that had to get your attention. He was variously received. Some received him, some didn't. Some said he was a quack. Don't be surprised when that happens. Those who did receive the word as truth joined Paul, and they went on his way, and he went from there to to Corinth. And they went on their way, and in that city, God had prepared hearts of many people to hear the gospel. See, if you heard the gospel when the prophet came to you, that's because God had already prepared you. The ravens heard the gospel because God prepared the ravens. The widow heard the gospel because God said, "I've, I've prepared a widow for you in that city, go there. And then what did God do in in Corinth when uh, uh, when Paul was certain he was going to run into trouble? The Spirit of God came to him and said, Don't be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. In other words, I've prepared them. When you preach the gospel to them, they'll respond, they'll be saved, and they'll be ours. God determines the who and God determines the how, right? That's what predestination is. The Spirit of God went ahead of the apostle and prepared the hearts of the people of Corinth to receive him, and God assured him he had many people in that city. God had one widow and her son in famine-stricken Zarephath. He had many people in the city of Corinth, He had one woman at a well in Samaria, and from her mouth many of her fellow Samaritans believed. If you remember, follow the story from John 4. The strange thing is that until any of them had heard the word of God, they did not know that the Lord had them. The Lord already had them, but until they heard the word of God, they didn't know that the Lord had them. You didn't know God had already prepared you before you heard the word. Then you heard the word effectively in that one instance, or efficaciously, I should say, and that's the day you responded. That's the day when you found out God had already done a work in your heart, because regeneration precedes faith. Faith just puts the lights on of regeneration. They found out to whom they belonged only after they heard the word preached by the mouth of God's appointed messenger. Now, if we're honest... We will notice that in none of these particular scenarios does the preacher, the gospel bearer, go into any doctrinal depth. You notice that? It's very surface and plain and fundamental. A prepared heart comes to God upon the call. And if he's genuinely called, he will not depart from the word when he gets further instruction. Now, you know, there will always be believing disciples and unbelieving disciples. And you say, well, how are they disciples if they're unbelieving? There's many of them. And if you remember from the Gospels where Jesus told them to eat my body and drink my blood, if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And then what does the scripture say? And then many of his disciples said, this is a hard saying who can understand it? And they walked with him no more. Unbelieving disciples. The believing disciples, they didn't understand it either. How do we eat his body and drink his blood? They didn't understand, but because it was his word and because God the Father already prepared their hearts, they stayed long enough for him to tell them the meaning of it. So if we're honest, we'll notice that in none of these particular scenarios does the preacher go into any doctrinal depth. A prepared heart comes to God when he is called, and a genuinely called heart does not depart upon further instruction. He stays. And I'll say that there are at least three points of doctrine that must be included in any declaration of the gospel. You want to know? how to preach the gospel, you want to know what's necessary in order for you to be secure in the fact that you have actually preached the gospel, you have to talk about the sovereignty of God. He is the creator. There's one blood. He's made all the nations of the earth, he told the Athenians in Mars Hill. He said, all men are from one blood, but he will judge them. There is a day he'll judge them. It's God who's in charge over the droughts and the famines of the world. It's God who is the judge of all mankind. It's God who commands the nations and is in charge of who's delivered and who is not. And so sovereignty comes first. On Mars Hill, Paul spoke of sovereignty this way. God made the world and everything in it since he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Friends, it's all right to have national borders. Just so you know, God invented the whole border thing. You're not a bad Christian because you think your nation needs a border. So number one, sovereignty. Never leave that out. A second point is Christ. There's so many Christless Gospels today, and I'm going to be honest with you, because a preacher goes through his week, and he's thinking all these things are affecting him, and he's saying, wow, that might make an illustration, or this might help, maybe I should speak on that, and something hit me this week. The Christless Gospel hit me this week. And I have nothing against this particular media person. All right? But I saw Savannah Guthrie. Anybody? Savannah Guthrie? No, nobody watches NBC anymore. Oh, boy. Christians don't turn on the, the, the uh, alphabet netf- networks anymore. <laughs> Savannah Guthrie is the big morning show on, um, on NBC in the morning. But what's it called? It's not Good Morning America. That's the other one. It's Today, the Today Show. Remember Matt Lauer? Remember Bryant Gumbel? You know, Jane Polly going back, right? Remember? back when you only had two or three channels in the good old days. She wrote a book on her spiritual life, and she was interviewed. And I saw her lengthy interview, and she's such a nice person, and she has such a nice, well-rounded faith in what? I don't know. She never mentioned Christ. It's not about Christ. Oh, I was brought up in the church. All right. Doesn't the church have a cross? Does the church have a crucifix? Does it, does it have anything that might make you believe that you needed a Savior? Or is it just me and God just floating around in bliss? I mean, I didn't get any. You see what I mean? This, I've had people say to me, you know, we should all just all get along and all just drop all the, all the um, denominational distinctions. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. But what's going, to be, what's going to be the basic doctrines that we believe? Can, can the people come in who don't believe in the deity of Christ? You know, let the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons come in. We're just going to join forces with those who have it all wrong? You know, what about justification by faith? We're we going, we going to join with people that don't believe that Jesus is the way and truth and the life, and you can only come to the Father through him? Are we one church with them? Of course not. There are distinctions. And there's gospels out there, there's, there's, oh, it's so wonderful, I pray, Uh, God answers my prayers, he's led me all my life, but there's never a mention of Jesus Christ. So there has to be the sovereignty of God, and there has to be the Son of God. No Christless gospel, as though a person could be saved apart from acknowledgement of the Savior. I'm saved, but I don't have a savior. Even back as far as Babylon, in the 5th and 6th centuries B.C. in Daniel's day, in Nebuchadnezzar's day, remember him? In the days of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, you remember them? Can you say it? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Joe was little, he said Shadrach, um, bed Shack and Negro. <laughs> but remember, the king himself looked into the burning, fiery furnace. Have you ever wondered why there was a burning, fiery furnace? I mean, they were in the plains of Iraq. It's pretty hot. Why'd they have a burning, fiery furnace? Because they made iron. It was a foundry, I'm assuming, right? Right? So they threw them in to the foundry furnace. In Brockton, they used to have this great old foundry. I used to love to go in there, and they're pouring the molten iron into these molds and things. Yeah, they had a furnace for smelting metals. You know, you know, it's interesting, a little side note. For a long time, the anthropological scientific uh, university world did not acknowledge that the Hittites even existed. Then they found out they not only existed, they invented iron. The Iron Age couldn't have happened without the non-existent Hittites. God's word told us all along. But we didn't follow the science, so we were therefore wrong until they figured it out. Now we're all right and happy together. No, but back in Nebuchadnezzar's day, they had, to be, they had to acknowledge Christ. Recall when the king looked down into the furnace and reported to his servant standing by just what he saw. He looked in and he said, did we not cast in three? I see four. And then he said this, and the fourth is like the Son of God. I guess when you see the Son of God, you know it's the Son of God. In the case of the woman at the well, Christ is right there to be recognized. He's standing there in the flesh. And so she and her compatriots could say, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. A Christless gospel doesn't save you. In the case at Athens, Paul said of God that he's appointed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by the man who he has ordained, and he has given us assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. He's the first fruits and the first born from the dead. The third thing, you have to mention sin in some form. You can't come just as you are. You have to be changed. And God does the changing. But there's always a mention of sin in the gospel. No mention of sin in the call to Christ has no reason to be answered, right? You have to know there's a need. Sin is the need, the deficit. Sin refers to a deficit. You've heard a missing of the mark, right? Paul's famous question... um, From chapter 6 was this, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? The Christian repents of sin. No mention of sin, and the gospel is an anemic gospel, empty of its power. And so with the woman at the well, Jesus bluntly presents her sin to her. He said, you've said, well, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. Busted. (laughs) In that you spoke truly. (laughs) She said, I have no husband, but she left out something. I'm living with a guy. To the Athenians on Mars Hill that day, Paul made it plain truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Got to mention sin, friends. You're repenting of sin. The widow, she spoke of her sin to Elijah after her son became sick unto death. She said, have you come to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? She knew about sin. That came right up in the conversation. Surely she was a great sinner who believed that she would be judged for it. But the prophet of God came with life. And you know the story. Her son was raised from the dead. She heard the gospel. The woman at the well heard the gospel. The people of Athens heard the gospel. Nebuchadnezzar heard the gospel. Did you know even Abraham heard the gospel? And it wasn't even probably in a written form in that day. 2,000 years before Christ. And Paul could say to the Galatians, and the scripture foreseeing God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. And so verse 22, Paul can say, for this reason, I've been much hindered from coming to you. I was busy going around preaching the gospel. That's the reason I've been hindered from coming, coming to you. And so we honor God's call first. We take our Christian responsibilities seriously, friends. Friends, stop giving Satan a foothold in your life by sinning and thinking it's good, and thinking it's okay, and thinking you're God's little darling and he doesn't care that you live in sin. As the Bible says, get real. And we either believe in evangelism as God's method to save, or we don't. You know, so many times I've said to people, yeah, so-and-so is, is, is saved. She came to the gospel through the Word and said, well, how do you know? I'm like, don't we believe the gospel? She said it. Her life's changed. She worships God now. She seeks out the word of God. We have to believe the gospel. And don't judge someone because they don't know everything you know. I've been around 30 years. I don't expect a guy that gets saved tomorrow to know what I know. But the basic content must be observed. Got to remember, friends, the gospel has content sovereignty, Savior and sin have to be included in the presentation. It doesn't take advanced training in the doctrines of God to enter the kingdom. I know I don't have to remind you of the thief on the cross. How much tutorial, how many Sunday schools do you think he went to? He went to Saturday school, the Sabbath. (laughs) Friends, I would argue, though, that even the thief on the cross came to see sovereignty, sin in Christ. We know he saw Christ. We know he saw his own sin. And he knew that Christ was sovereign and could save him. He had to know the basics. And so he had a pure gospel, and so his faithful plea was honored by Christ. Paul would have liked to go to Rome, friends. It was his heartfelt desire. But alas, he had to defer to his heartfelt duty first. Duty before desire. Surely that must be the motto of the believer. Say that to yourself in the morning when you're going off to do the wrong thing. Duty before desire. Verse 23, but now, no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while." When he says that I may be helped on my way there by you, I think he's talking about money, a gift, right? And he said, but first I'd like to enjoy your company for a while. I think he's being very polite and very candid there. Duty before desire, Paul has preached and performed many mighty signs and wonders. From Jerusalem, roundabout to Illyricum. I gave you a list in last week's notes. Go back and look at all the miracles and signs that Paul did. And he may say that he has fully preached the gospel of Christ. When you've preached the gospel, have you fully preached it? Have you given them the whole scope of the necessary points of truth in order that they might recognize not only their need for a Savior, but the Savior himself? So he can say he's fully preached the gospel of Christ, and so now he may entertain his fervent hope and desire to go to Rome. I've done my duty. I've done all these things. Little does he know that when he goes, it'll finally be as a prisoner of Rome. He's going. Read Acts 28. Actually, the last four chapters of Acts. Really a great story. He's going, but he's going as a prisoner, Little does he know that at the time, he's seeking an audience with the emperor. By the way, a a note from last week that I repent of, that Dr. Roach got wrong. (laughs) No, I said, during Jesus' lifetime, Tiberius was the emperor. And we know that Claudius succeeded him because Claudius, in the book of Acts, kicked all the Jews out of Jerusalem, if you remember, or out of Rome, rather, and um, Aquila and Priscilla were there right? And he kicked them out, remember? And last week I said, now who succeeded Claudius? Was it Tiberius? And uh, I, of course, called on Dr. Roche, who knows everything. And he said, yes, but I caught him quickly off guard. No, it wasn't. Tiberius preceded Claudius, and then Claudius was succeeded by Nero. And of course, Tom came up to me later and said, I think we got that wrong. (laughs) And and Brian said, nobody will care. don't even mention it. (laughs) Nobody will pick up on it. But no, I, I, I like to make it known that there, you know, our gospel is historical. It happened in time, and we should get the certain points of history right. Claudius came in for something like 14 years, 13 or 14 years. So it's significant that during Paul's life, in fact, when Paul went to appeal to Caesar, he was appealing to Claudius, but Claudius died, and his nutty son Nero became emperor. All right, having cleared that up. So even Paul's personal desires seem to become prophetic fulfillments. He's going to Rome, but he doesn't know he's going under guard. So what can we learn from all this? How may this principle be applied to our lives? Well, succinctly stated, it's duty before desire, and that applies to every aspect of our lives. Jesus taught this very thing. We do well to take heed of it. Remember Jesus' words to Peter? Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. You know, sometimes we think, oh, I can't wait to retire. Just do anything I want. May not be that way for the Christian. I'm not expecting it. I want some things I'm not even going to pursue unless they come upon me. You know, I can tell you one thing I'm not going to do is get a big camper and travel around with Karen with a sticker on the back that says, spending my children's inheritance. I'm not going to do that. I don't think any Christian should do that. Especially where those things eat a lot of gas, man, and the global warming and the whole thing. (laughs) I'm talking about the money, not the global warming. Um, As you know, there are verses in the scriptures about global warming. The earth will melt with fervent heat and such and such. Remember Jesus' words to Peter, When you are older, another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. It seems the disciples of Christ... Are granted some relative freedoms in their lives, but ultimately we all go where God would have us to go. If you don't believe this, ask Jonah when you get there. Yeah. Ask Noah. Yeah. Build an ark, take a hundred years out of your life, and build a big boat, even though there's never been any rain. You know, ask, ask Abraham, who came out of the... I'll take you to a land where you, that you have not known, a land that I will show you. Like, all right. And you just start walking a thousand miles in the desert? David writes of this very thing in the psalm where he says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and the Lord delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hands. Sovereignty, friends. Proverbs says it this way, a man's steps are ordered by the Lord. How then can he understand his way? It's like, how did I get here? Don't be surprised that you're asking that sometimes. You know, I, th- there are many people in my life that would say, how did you ever get behind a pulpit talking to people, and now 30 years have gone by? And the answer is, really, I don't know. I mean, I know how, essentially. Why, I have no idea. Verses 25 through 28 now I'm going to Jerusalem, another but now of Paul. Now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. So let's get this right. Paul is in Corinth. You get your map? Sometimes we need a big map up here so I can point. But picture the Mediterranean, and you got Italy over here, and Sicily down the bottom, right? Picture that. And over here is Rome on the western side, right, of the boot. And then you have this Adriatic Sea coming up like this, and then you have Greece And Corinth is over here. So if you go into Rome, you would want to go from Greece around the boot of Italy through the strait between Sicily and the boot of Italy and go right to Rome. But Paul is going to go over here. you got the Aegean Sea, and it comes right down to Jerusalem, a thousand miles away. And then he's saying, but when I come to you, he's going away first. I want to come to you, but I'm going a thousand miles in the other direction first. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. That's what churches do. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in their material things. As James said, don't say to the poor naked man, go and be warmed, but give him your coat. Don't say... About They go and be warm. No, you got to give them the coat. Give them the blanket, right? For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual thing, their duty is to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go to you by way of Spain. In other words, I'm planning a trip to Spain, but I haven't been to see you yet, and I know so many of you, and I've written you this great doctrinal treatise so you can grow in Christ and pass down your faith to your children and that the church may continue to prosper in the righteousness of God. He's done all these things, and I'm going to drop in on my way to Spain. And so his heartfelt personal desire... He doesn't mind expressing his personal desires to be with the saints of Rome, but there's one more pressing need to fulfill before he goes there from Corinth. And so the circuitous route of duty will take him nearly 1,000 miles in the other direction. I looked it up. It's 877 miles. The circuitous route of duty. Sometimes you're going to say to yourself, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that, even though I know I should do it, I'm not going to do it. Look at the roundabout way you have to go to doing it. It's the way it is sometimes, the circuitous route of duty. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that when Paul was in Caesarea on his way to Jerusalem, a prophet named Agabus came in among them. And you read this, And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, he bound his own hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And of course it came true. Paul said in Acts 20 to the elders from Ephesus, he said, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns, that prison and hardship await me. He was the prophet of his own life, too. The disciples pleaded with him not to go. Now, that can happen. You've been called to a dangerous place, and the ones who love you say, don't go there. And what does Paul say to that? What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's what Jesus did. They told Jesus, don't go into Jerusalem. Not after that show you did in the temple the other day, right? And the Bible kept saying he set his face to Jerusalem. Paul would go there, friends. He would be arrested there, just as Agabus had said. He would be bound. He would be threatened. But according to the prophecy of Agabus, he would be delivered to the Gentiles for judgment. Remember the Romans of the Gentiles, right? And after a few more eventful years, if you follow it, I traced it uh, last night through the book of Acts, it's years. It's years even, but it's two years at least before he even gets there. All right? He makes his way to Rome. And if you remember, they got in the shipwreck and they landed on Malta, an island in the Mediterranean. And he did a few miracles there to help them out in Malta. And the snake went on his arm and he shook it off, hallelujah, shook it into the fire. Um... It says, Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him. He's under house arrest. I don't know if he could leave the house or not. I'm presuming not, but he could have visitors. And so he's in his own rented house for two years, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ um, with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And the book of Acts ends. And so we know that Paul wrote the so-called prison epistles at that time. He wrote the epistles of Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and Philemon while he was at that house. But the Bible's silent as to the rest. Early church tradition speaks of his trip to Spain. Early writers, extra-biblical writers, believe he went to Spain. And he had to have gone somewhere because he ends up in prison in Rome again, and this time not under house arrest in nice conditions. The events are cloudy at best, but we know that he was again arrested and imprisoned in Rome, this time bereft of the comforts of home as in the first instance. In a cold Roman cell, he would write to Timothy that he fully expects to be executed this time. So he got his wish, (laughs) His desire was fulfilled. He got to Rome. And he writes, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then he pleads with Timothy, who he considers a a son in the Lord. Be diligent to come to me come quickly. At my first defense, no one stood with me. He's talking about in court. But all forsook me, probably believing that they would be charged with something if they took his side. That can happen. It's very sad. May it not be charged against them, he says. They didn't do it malice. They did it for fear and But the Lord, and then he goes through and he names some of the people. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. You know, he talks, he names some of the people that didn't stand with him. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me that all the Gentiles might hear. And so he died just doing his duty. Father, in Jesus' name, O Lord, we praise you. For the preservation of this, your holy word, and the stories and narratives of Luke and the apostles, O Lord, we are blessed by them. Let them bless us and guide us in our lives. And may we be as true to our duty as they were. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.